2: Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie.
1: And I'm Elliot.
2: And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender.
1: Episode 90.
2: Episode 90 of our regular series, but technically the 100th episode we've released. Pretty cool. Pretty cool.
1: And we're recording this on Remember, Remember the 5th of November.
2: We are recording this on Remember, Remember the 5th of November. We should have watched V for Vendetta this week. Should have. But we did not.
1: Shame. Uh, before we get into this macaroni we watched this week, just want to send out a quick reminder that we just dropped another episode in our series, The Rad Rap, and we talked about and unpacked the Not Your Final Girl 2023 series curated by our buddy Nicole Boychuk, and we had Nicole on the pod to talk about it and to debrief and get into all the thoughts and feelings about all the films that she picked for the series. It was an excellent conversation. Highly recommend checking it out. Go get into it. Six macaroonies this week with a lot of stories and just a lot of good movies overall. It's an excellent 90th episode, so let's just get into it.
2: All right. The first movie we watched, we went to Metro Cinema and we saw the 1964 drama fantasy horror film QuiDon. On. It was directed by Masaki Kobayashi and written by Yoko Mizuku and based on writing by Lafzado Hearn. It serves a lot of people because it's four short films, kind of like 45 minute films mm-hmm. in one. So I'm going to list kind of the main people from each of the four films. So Rentaro Mikuni as Husband. Michio Aratami as first wife. Masako Watanabe as second wife. Then in the second film, Tetsuya Nakadai as Minokichi. No Kaiko Kishi as Yuki the Snow Maiden. In the third film, Katsuo Nakamura as Hochi and Tetsuro Tanba as warrior. And Kanemon Nakamura... Nope, this is from the fourth film. <laughs> Kanimon Nakamura as Kanai and Asumo Kazizawa as author and Naboru Nakaya as Shikipu Hanai. Lots of people, and that's not even nearly all of them. Synopsis for Kwidon is a collection of four Japanese folk tales with supernatural themes. What did you think of on?
1: I mean, right off the bat, it was so sick to get to see this in the theater for the first time, because it is a highly regarded film, and I don't think just because it is a three-plus-hour movie, it is something we're probably less likely to pick up at home um, and like really have to be in the mood for it. And that's why we like relying on Metro to just show us the cool shit that we wouldn't have picked at home.
2: Yeah, just curate it for us, you know.
1: um, And it had a little preamble intro by Kyle Edward Ball, who, if you don't know, is the director of the film Skinnerink, which is an Edmonton horror movie gem. And it was just kind of cool to have him there in attendance. And he picked the film um he was asked by metro to to pick a pick a film, and this is what he chose and This was the night before Halloween,
2: yeah, so he was there to intro and and he stayed and watched this movie, and then they were playing Marink right after, which he introed as well. We didn't stay for Marink because that is a long night of a three hour Japanese folktale movie, and then <laughs> Skinnammerrink, and, and we really do want to watch Marink again but we want to watch it at home because yeah. I think it's two very different experiences. And I, I think there's, there's just the odd movie that's better at home than it is in the theater. And I think Skinamarink is going to be one of them.
1: Yeah. Um, we talked about this when we covered Skinamarink, but Skin and Marink is so about home. Yeah. That watching it at home is an experience we both want to have.
2: Yeah. So we were like quiet on and, and then we'll, we'll uh, cut Go and run. Home.
1: Um, I love a multiple stories movie. Like I also do. Like I remember, I mean, as a kid, I, I really liked Fantasia. Yeah. And, and as a teenager, I really liked the film Parisia Tem.
2: Oh, I knew this about you, yes.
1: And I mean, I haven't revisited Parisia Tem in a long time, but there's something really cool that I really like about those films and those films where it gets like multiple directors to come in and and do this sort of series that are linked by like a theme or a place or whatever it is. But what's cool about qui is that it's four stories all directed by the same director.
2: Yeah, it's more like certain women.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Something where you've got these kind of mini short films within one film that are linked together through something. In the case of qui they're linked together through aesthetic, I would say. And through like the theme of ghosts. Yeah. Like they're all exploring what it means to be ghostly. Um,
1: You know what I was actually just thinking like this might be even tied back. My, my love for these kinds of films might be tied back to even when I was a little, little baby boy and I would just watch Looney Tunes because it's just like (laughs) a bunch of different stories directed by different people. And yeah, stems back to when I was just a little nugget.
2: So this film has four different segments. It's a three hour movie. So those segments aren't short um, they're almost like a, we don't really have a name for it, like the novella of films where they're mm-hmm. not a short film, but they're not a feature film. They're kind of something in between. So the four segments are The Black Hair, The Woman of the Snow, Ho Chi the Earless, and In a Cup of Tea. Um, what I didn't pick up on at the time, but you may have because you're a little bit more visual than me, is that each of the stories is tied to a season. So we like cover the seasons through the stories. So I believe we start in fall, fall go to winter, Spring and then summer at the end, or something, something like that. Mm. Um, for me, I, I really enjoyed all of them, but the first two were by far my favorite. Mm-hmm. And then um, Ho Chi, the earless, had some of my favorite moments, especially my favorite aesthetic moments. Yeah, and then the fourth one was just hilarious and fun, and kind of coalesced some of the bigger thematic elements of the film. Yeah, and like brought all of the stories together in that thematic space, there was no like tie in of, oh, and now all of a sudden the characters are connected in some way, but it was just like, why have these four films been put together? Um, and I thought that that final film really solidified that.
1: Yeah. And it also took the, the stories out on like a pretty good note. Um, the most humorous note of all of the stories, which was really enjoyable in a cup of tea. Like you and I have been riffing on that and, and doing jokes and bits from it.
2: For a week. (laughs) Since we saw it.
1: And I mean, the formula was totally there for us to totally love this because we've started discovering that we do have quite a big love for Japanese cinema. And we've also learned about ourselves that we quite like 60s cinema. Mm -hmm. So it's like, here we go, baby. The whole thing was so compelling. And I think because it was directed by the same director, there's just such a clear lock on vision and execution.
2: Oh yeah, the vibes in this are immaculate. It's just like beautiful to watch. And this is the first film that we've seen um, from Kobayashi, but he does have the number one film on Letterboxd. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Kiri, I think is what it's called. So I'm like, well, guess it won't be the last film of his we watch because I, <laughs> yeah. I really liked it. Um, and this one, you know, it's a little bit potentially, it's slow, it's long, it's four different stories I was like, oh, how's the audience going to be like? No, that was a locked in audience. It was so perfect. The only tricky part was that Marink, I think, was decently busy. And like people started kind of filing in for that in the last like 15-ish minutes of this movie. And we could hear them in the lobby. And Quiet On is such a quiet movie. But thankfully, that last story is pretty fun and funny. And and it didn't totally like wreck the vibes. Mm -hmm. Um, But what a gift to see I like three-hour-plus movie in the theater with an audience that's just locked in and everybody's respecting the space in the film.
1: Oh, yeah. And when you have a respectful audience, you are able to just really lock in yourself and see the beauty and all of the intention behind everything on the screen when you're not being distracted by people wanting to take photos of the screen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is a... um it was. It's an interesting film because I was reading that it didn't really do well in America when it first came here in the 60s because what North American audience knew of Japanese cin- cinema was Godzilla. Mm. And this is not Godzilla. <laughs> no. So they were just being big babies and they were like, I want Godzilla. I want fast paced. I want destruction. And this is <laughs> this is not that this film is what I love about ghost films. I love stories about ghosts. I love the concept of ghosts of the word ghost and how it can apply outside of the supernatural. And
1: we literally have matching tattoos of ghosts.
2: We do. Um, and I find that when I really love a ghost story, it's not ghosts as scary. It's not like, I mean, I guess paranormal activity is demons, but it's ghosts as sad or ghosts as lonely or ghosts as stuck and confused. And like not knowing where they are. Or ghosts as like trying to escape. And I found that this film. In having these four different stories. Kind of explored the different ways. That a ghost can be. And we had. Vengeful ghosts. We had sad ghosts. We had ghosts who lose something. We had ghosts who just want to be connected. Um, and I loved that it kind of explored those different ways of being ghostly. I thought that was really. Beautiful thematically.
1: Yeah. And I mean, also I think to just kind of illustrate the kind of ghost stuff that we like that you were just talking about something more contemporary is the work that Mike Flanagan was doing with Hill House or Black Manor. 100%. Um, On the flip side of the ghosts, I felt like this was just a really great examination. It both examines and challenges the different ideas of man. Mm. And some of the things that I, that I've kind of written down are, This like the selfishness that goes into wanting to prove oneself and the ignorance of kindness and that kindness being exploited and just like hardheadedness and the unwillingness to understand to understand why you're being hardheaded and maybe in in place of that turning to violence like and it's all through the lens of men.
2: Yeah, you mean men as in men the gender, gender, not that, like, sexist men as all humans. Like,
1: humans are man. No. Yeah,
2: gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I that's not something that I really picked up on in, in a first viewing, but now that you say that, that's totally there. And, you know, it really... It, there, it is a man who is the protagonist in each film, but not in a way that feels like it's doing that to sideline women, but to examine men.
1: Yeah. Like... And they all kind of get their comeuppance in some way or another. I
2: think they all learn a lesson.
1: Yeah, that's that. Yeah.
2: And which makes sense because this is based on folktales and Mm -hmm. folktales usually have a moral or a something that they leave the audience with or leave the reader with. And when you think back to like folktales are originating originating in like oral tradition, Like this is about sitting around a fire or sitting in a place and somebody's telling the story and we all learn something from the story. So that really carries through, but it doesn't feel didactic and it doesn't feel like it's hitting you over the head with it. It just weaves into this like beautiful thematic and aesthetic tapestry. Um, Roger Ebert said of this, he's not the first time he's going to come up this week. Mm. Um, He called quite on, quote, an assembly of ghost stories that is among the most beautiful films I've seen. And it is, like, this is just visually impeccable, but it's also got that surreality because it's using, like, painted uh, backgrounds Mm -hmm. in a way that, like, is evoking some, like, Wizard of Oz kind of stuff to me, and then I was thinking, like, in a contemporary lens, like, Bo is Afraid, Um, and it's really beautiful to see a film that's Well lauded, but maybe not everybody's seen it and then be like, oh, I can see how some more contemporary films that I really like have been inspired by this or how it's been a staple in cinema that has had an impact that's proliferated over the years that I'm now just realizing as I watch this.
1: Yeah, it's also something it's a look and an aesthetic that can both be tied to, I think, also stage plays, but also animation. Mm. Like if you're looking at anime or if you're looking at Looney Tunes, the backgrounds are painted and they're static. And then you're just animating the characters that are in front of it. But you have this beautiful artwork that's in the background. So it's evoking a bit of that as well. And it's gorgeous.
2: Yeah, it was a really, really beautiful film. And it was really special to see it with this small group of people. But really engaged group of people in the theater and this is definitely one i'll watch again and i want to explore more of kobayashi's work
1: 100 percent.
2: how did quite on make you feel
1: in awe of this expertly crafted piece of cinema how did it make you feel
2: it made me feel moved by the varying explorations of ghostliness and the stunning aesthetics just what a beautiful beautiful film in in multiple meanings of the word
1: indeed okay we went back out to Metro Cinema and we watched the 1973 drama horror mystery film Don't Look Now. This was actually the night before Halloween.
2: Yeah, you're mixing <laughs> up your dates.
1: Um, it was directed by Nicholas Rogue and written by Daphne Maurier, who well, she wrote, wrote, the wrote the story, story. Yeah. which this is based on. Then Alan Scott and Chris Bryant wrote the screenplay. And it stars Julie Christie as Laura Baxter, Donald Sutherland as John Baxter, Hillary Mason as Heather, Clelia Matania as Wendy, Massimo Serrato as Bishop Barbarigo, and Renato Scarpa as Inspector Longhi. Synopsis. A married couple grieving the recent death of their young daughter are in Venice when they encounter two elderly sisters, one of whom is psychic and brings a warning from beyond. What do you think of Don't Look Now?
2: So this is one that's been on my I want to watch list for a long time and it isn't anywhere to stream for free or like to stream with a subscription. It's only places to rent. So I actually borrowed it a long time ago from our friend Lori of Queer Horror Cult. and just hadn't picked it Mm. it's it's longish it's two hours there's an image from this film that we've seen i believe it was on like a scariest movie moments in shutter or something like that um and i thought it was maybe from the end of the film this like really striking image of like donald sutherland's character john with a little girl in a red raincoat Mm -hmm. um but it's actually from the very beginning of the film and so i was glad to be like oh that's not like the culmination of the film that's Mm -hmm. In like the first five minutes. This was such a good next film after watching Quiet On because to me, this is also a ghostly film, but it's like ghostliness as grief, like how grief haunts you mm-hmm. um, and and takes up space in your life in this way that you can try to pretend you don't see, but is clinging to you nonetheless. Mm hmm. And just like Quiet On and just like you mentioned, actually, I I have in my notes that this film evoked what I love about Mike Flanagan's work, what I love about Shirley Jackson's writing, which Mike Flanagan has adapted, (laughs) and what I love about, like, I've read Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, the the book. This is uh, based on a short story by her. And just that kind of, like, gothic horror sensibility, but with a more emotional lens. Yeah. Um, that's my favorite kind of ghost stuff. Yeah. So this is really actually tying into what I liked about Quiet On, but this is a little bit more subdued. It's also stylish as hell. Yeah. But in a very different way. It's not like aesthetic, it's style.
1: Well, they do such a good job of making the setting of Venice feel both lavish and beautiful but then also claustrophobic and consuming
2: yeah like a maze and and narrowing and and um yeah when you say confusing like as a viewer you're like I can't even distinguish these places from each other and everything is is these narrow channels and you have to get in a boat to get anywhere (laughs) and like the characters are getting lost in Venice and I feel like I love when a setting has that kind of symbolic intentionality of this narrow but beautiful but gridlocked <laughs> Venice is a symbolic representation of how they're managing their grief.
1: Yeah. And I just think it was just so wonderfully surprising that this is another fantastic use of genre to explore the complexity of grief. Like,
2: this is one of those movies that I could see because it's well regarded. And it's listed as a horror film and I could see a person being like, Oh, I'm going to watch this well regarded horror film and then be like, that wasn't a horror movie, Mm -hmm. but it is, it's just a very different kind of horror movie. This is a, it's very grounded. It's very real. Like I felt like this is a film where I'm like that, like John and um, Laura feel like a real couple. Yeah. Like it, Doesn't feel like a script. It feels like I'm watching a real couple in a real relationship with the way that they talk. There's an everydayness about it. Yeah. And there's a sex scene in this movie that is like one of the most realistic sex scenes I've ever seen that also doesn't didn't seem like it was trying to be titillating or trying to be sexy. It was just showing a couple having sex because that's a part of their life.
1: Yeah, like my thought was like, this is what it looks like when people, but especially people that have been together for a long time, this is what they it looks like when they have sex.
2: And to me, that seemed revolutionary for 1973 to have like a sex scene like that. That's not, it's not for sentimentality. It's not for titillation. It's just to deepen the understanding of the relationship between the characters in a natural and realistic way, because mm. that is a part of a couple's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I was reading a little bit about it because it's so, it's such a interesting scene because it's not graphic, but it is also, but it's so intimate.
1: Like it's quirky and messy and passionate and spicy. Like, and it's
2: intercut with other stuff. So I guess that the director had to do that because they wouldn't, to get an R rating instead of an X rating, they wouldn't allow any like hip movement. Right. And so he cut. So it's all just kind of like static shots. Not not totally static. But that's so you're not really seeing any gyration going no. on. Um, no thrust. Yes. That's gross, but yes. <laughs> um, but I was reading that for Julie Christie, it was like a really tough scene to film. And like uh, the person she was dating at the time who was a famous actor, and I didn't write down the name, was like a real loser about it and was like, that feels unsimulated and I need to talk to Donald Sutherland. And like there was all these rumors that like they had actually had sex because it was such a realistic looking scene, even though the director and everyone involved and people who were on set said, no, that's not what happened. There's a quote from Julie Christie where she said, uh, quote, there was no available examples, no role models. I just went blank and Nick shouted instructions. It's like, that's a it's such a revolutionary scene and I actually think it's such a beautiful scene, but it's really disappointingly unsurprising that it was difficult for her on set and afterwards. Mm. Um, And it really made me appreciative of the um, turn to having intimacy coaches on sets. And, Mm. you know, I'm thinking about, a more contemporary example of sex scenes that are really realistic and really beautiful without being like salacious or like overly sentimental would be the show normal people. Yeah. And both Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Maskell have talked about like the extreme importance of having an intimacy coach on set to make sure that like those kinds of intense scenes kept everybody safe and cared for. Um, And then on a non-sexual uh, example: Paul Mescal in After Sun. They had an intimacy coach for his scenes with Frankie Corio, who plays his daughter, to make sure that you know these scenes where they're like dancing together and he's holding her when he's like you know rubbing her head as he puts her to bed. That like everybody's safe and cared for in these moments where there's intimate touch, even though it's not a sexual touch.
1: And it's just going to put everybody at ease,
0: and or
2: or try to create a space where that's and that you have a point person. If something isn't going well. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm um, disappointed about that. But
1: yeah, absolutely. I was just frantically Googling and the the years line up that she'd been dating Warren Beatty.
2: Yeah, that's who it was. Is he like a loser? I feel like I've heard that name. And- he's
1: the one that fucked up the whole Moonlight La La Land thing. And he's with Annette Bening, which is a shame. He played Dick Tracy. I don't know. He's like a big he's a big cheese guy. But like, I, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't really know anything about this going into it. I just saw like the, the utterly unhinged trailer before movies at Metro. And I'm like, this seems like it's going to be just a wild ride. And I, I really enjoyed it from front to back. I was so compelled. And some of the techniques that they're using throughout, I just, just were working for me. It felt so dreamy and unsettling. Like, there's something about a 1970s movie where they do like a whip pan or like a really quick zoom or a push in where I'm just like, I'm so disoriented <laughs> and it yeah. makes it feel so surreal.
2: This feels like part of the lineage that David Lynch is in.
1: Or like Hitchcock.
2: So yeah, the uh, Nicholas Rogue who made the film um, specifically like was homaging and inspired by Hitchcock in making this like he's spoken about that um like how he's indebted to the films of Alfred Hitchcock and then what's really interesting is like this movie um wasn't necessarily a big success when it was released and I wouldn't even say that like everybody's seen it now but there's a lot of filmmakers who talk about this as a like key influence in them so Some people who have talked about this influencing either all of their work or a specific film. Lynn Ramsey said it was a key influence on We Need to Talk About Kevin. Lars von Trier's um, frequent cinematographer Anthony Dodd-Mantel says he's seen this film more than any other film in the world. And he worked on Antichrist, which has been kind of compared to this film. Ari Aster said it was a really big influence on Hereditary And um, Martin McDonough said that it was a huge influence on In Bruges and he actually has like direct homages to this film in In Bruges, which Mm. I'd have to rewatch to to see. But I believe In Bruges, is it set in Venice? Maybe not. But I think there's like a person in a raincoat in it.
0: I think that's
2: a part of the film. So like this has been a really big influence on a lot of filmmakers and i see it because there's so much style the opening and closing scenes of this are some of the best i've ever seen especially from a stylistic point of view and it feels like the kind of film that i'll get so much more out of on a rewatch it feels like maybe on a second or third or on a fourth viewing i'll be like oh this is a five out of five
0: yeah
1: yeah it's so interesting like you saying all that like i can see the threads in so many things like especially like think about hereditary just that exploration of grief and I feel like even the performance that comes from Donald Sutherland and the grief that he experiences both like the extreme highs and the more subdued lows you can totally see that in like Tony Collette or a uh, Gabriel Mann in her in hereditary.
2: Well, so Nicholas Rogue said, like what compelled him to make this movie and like to make it out of this short story. So this is a quote from him, um, was quote, making grief into the sole thrust of the film, grief can separate people, even the closest, healthiest relationship can become undone through grief. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's that could be the log line for hereditary as well, right? Which is like I I said this to a colleague uh, I was talking to a couple of colleagues on supervision at work this past week and they were like, what are your favorite kinds of movies? And I was like, oh, really, really, really slow movies where basically nothing seems to happen and there doesn't really seem to be a plot. But ultimately, they're about grief <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like that. Those are my like, yes, I love horror movies. But my favorite movies <laughs> mm-hmm. are like slow, surreal or abstract films that are kind of plotless kind of aimless and explore grief or some other emotion (laughs) and
1: it's so funny because that's so specific yet you and i share that exact same thing (laughs) Yep, like that is our fucking jam and
2: so yeah this movie was like bound to be something we liked um what do you think of donald sutherland's butt because it's out a lot
1: man so much of southey's butt and i mean it's a good butt
2: (laughs) it's a good butt
1: but, like, I love that, like, as soon as the butt's out, he's doing lots of stuff. He's at his out.
2: drafting table with his butt out.
1: Reading the paper, like, like, hams up to the sky, up to the heavens. Yeah, good. Good for him. I, I really, really, really hope that Kiefer Sutherland watching was like, dad.
2: Put your butt away. <laughs> Put
1: your butt away, dad.
2: Okay, so interesting thing I learned about. I have just, like, a couple cool things to say about Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, who, like, absolutely crush in this. Like, they're so good.
1: And like, I don't know, I, I, like they're both pretty babyly, like, Oh, yeah. They're both like unique looking people that are pretty babe
2: Yeah, I'm like, great, great couple there. So Donald, Donald Sutherland, I didn't know this, he named all of his kids after directors that he worked with who had an influence on him. They're the last names of directors that he worked with. So he has a kid named Rogue after this guy. Oh. And Kiefer is the last name of a director that he worked with. Hmm. So interesting. I'm like, huh, cool way to... I mean, it's kind of how we named our cat. Not that we've worked with Hunter Thompson, but <laughs> is the last name of someone. Um, and then Julie Christie seems like the coolest person in the world. Seems like we'd be like she'd be a great friend, good mentor for us. So she has a longtime partner and no kids. Mm-hmm. And they like they are married, but they like I don't think they really had a wedding or if they did, it was like not really publicized. And one day she's like, oh, yeah, we've been married for a long time. Um she has been a longtime Palestinian activist, like for a, like that's been a key part of her activism and her work that she does outside of being an actor. And she's also a longtime vegetarian. Fuck yeah. So Julie Christie, be our friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please. She seems really cool. And that made me happy. Another cool thing about this movie. Did you like the score? Yeah. So the guy who did the score was a musician who had never scored a film. And Nicholas Rogue was like, I want you to score this movie. And he's like, dude, I've never scored a film. And he was like, but I want you to do it. And it was so successful. People liked it so much. He had such a good time with it that he stopped doing like music music and became like a full time film score. So cool. And he uh, worked with Brian De Palma on most of his films. That's so cool. And most recently, not that I like this show at all, but he's done work for Euphoria.
1: That's really cool. Like that's just such a great example of going outside of your comfort zone and just being like, I don't know what the fuck, man. And then being
2: like, sweet. But also having somebody be like, I like your music. I think you do a good job at this and just trusting them and being like, I don't care that you've never done it before. I trust you. Yeah. And I think that you have something to offer this extension of your field.
1: Well, and I think that that's just where the magic happens in terms of creativity. Like you're just you're trying to kind of bash your way through it to get to something that you think is right. But through that, you're also creating and finding your own voice through that medium that you've never tried before. And it's scary and unknown, but it's so fucking cool. I love that.
2: Yeah. I thought that was a cool little story. I I really like this movie. This was another, I mean, Metro cinema is just the only place I have any faith in because This was a slow movie and it wasn't necessarily what everybody who came to it thought it was going to be. And the audience was awesome. Mm -hmm. And it was like a decent sized audience and people were locked in. And I just had such a good time. And I definitely want to watch it again in the future. It's on Criterion. I would love to buy it on Criterion. And
1: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah, really, really good.
1: Yeah, 100% agree. How'd it make you feel?
2: It made me feel moved to use the same language I used for quiet on made me feel moved by the complex explorations of relationships and grief. Mm. How did it make you feel?
1: Swept up in the chaotic realism and exploration of grief.
2: Okay. This is a complicated discussion for this one and I'm going to let you lead a little bit, but uh, this was the first movie we watched at home this week. I picked it. It was my mystery pick. I picked the drama romance sci-fi film, little fish from 2020 was directed by Chad Hartigan and written by Mattson Tomlin, and it's based on the short story by Aja Gable. It stars Olivia Cooke as Emma, Jack O'Connell as Jude, Soko as Samantha, and Raul Castillo as Ben. The synopsis for Little Fish is a couple fights to hold their relationship together as a memory loss virus spreads and threatens to erase the history of their love and courtship. What did you think of Little Fish?
1: Before, before we get into talking about the movie have a bit of a personal story that we'll share. So something came up while we were watching this movie that has been a point of conflict in our relationship for a long time. And it's a problem that is good for memes and bad for our relationship. And it's this ongoing thing that I've been doing since I was a kid. It was very much a thing in the house that I grew up in, not just for me, but By the people I was modeling my behavior after, which were my mom and dad and many other people throughout my family as well, which is sitting down to intentionally watch a movie or a TV show and then falling asleep. And then if somebody were to ask if you fell asleep, immediately knee jerk lying about it and just say, no, I'm not sleeping. And like I said, like this is a meme across the internet that is really, <laughs> I get served this a lot and oh, I don't knows it, it must know. And yeah, it, it's something I've been doing forever and it's not a, it's, it's not a good behavior and it's, it's because of the nature of it being a meme and it being such a thing with so many people in our lives and in other people's lives that it, It's typically found to be a humorous, jokey thing. But when it comes to the way that you and I watch movies, that's not really the case. Because you and I have made a very conscious decision, especially since starting the podcast, um, but beyond, but especially now, and doing mystery movie picks, is that we are choosing movies for each other with intention, and we're excited to show each other movies and we want to experience them together. And also, we are now, resp- we have a responsibility to this podcast to not sleep through these movies so that we can recount them accurately and honestly. Because if it's just you and then I'm just like, yeah, I fell asleep. So you just talk about them. It's not fair. And it's not kind to each other to fall asleep during these things that we've picked for each other. So we started watching little fish and this doesn't change anything about it, but I didn't realize that this was a movie that you were excited for. I had never heard of it, so I wasn't aware of it, but whether you're excited for it or not, it was a movie that you picked and I I started falling asleep. And then it was during a very pivotal point in the movie. You asked if I was asleep and I immediately knee-jerk reaction said no, and then you asked a second time, and I said no again. And this is something we've had the biggest fights. I would argue yeah. in our in the course of our relationship has been about this very thing happening. It's it, and like we've said to like you said to me, it's not even about the fact that I've fallen asleep. It's about the fact that I immediately lie about it. Mm-hmm. Instead of communicating right out of the bat, you know, I'm kind of tired. I don't know if I'll make it through this movie right out of the bat. Or if if I am falling asleep and you ask if I'm asleep, saying, yeah, I'm falling asleep and communicating that I don't think I'll be able to make it through the rest of the movie. You'd be disappointed.
2: But I wouldn't be mad.
1: But you would be mad. We've had so so many conversations about this. But it was just such a disrespectful thing that just that I did and it kind of came to a head where you felt extremely disrespected and I I did such a shitty thing that you didn't want to finish the movie
2: no because I we were literally at the climax of the movie and you didn't know what had been going on
0: yeah. And I was just I wasn't like, on well, the what's the journey with you anymore? What's the
2: point? I don't want to rewatch 20 minutes of it like and then have you fall asleep again. Yeah. So, who cares?
1: Yeah. And I I completely was aware that I hurt your feelings and that I had fucked up. And I when we get into moments of conflict and this stems back to me being a kid anytime i'm in a moment of conflict my defense mechanism is to wall up to basically just go inside and i don't know how to communicate effectively and i'll usually like and it, well in this case i put the the onus of the situation on you i'm like well how can we salvage this and it's like that's not on you as i reflected on it to come up with this is my problem <laughs> i needed to guide what could come next. But I won't get into all the details, but essentially we went to bed, not in a good place.
2: Yeah. And then I watched the movie on my own.
1: Yeah. You've, yeah. You went ahead and finished it. I didn't deserve to finish it that night. <laughs>
2: you didn't deserve it. <laughs> no.
1: Um, but I did a lot of reflecting the next day and just kind of cons- after
2: you finished the movie by yourself. Yeah.
1: I woke up in the morning, finished the movie but i did like and like that was another thing too is that well and we'll get into it is that i finished it and that made me even more sad because the movie's amazing and i fucked up this i, I fucked up our initial watching experience which just so it so sucks because it's incredible and i you were the
2: bad audience member big time you were the piss audience i should tag it as that in yeah. letterbox
1: piss boy audience Um, but I did a lot of reflecting on it and I continue to be sorry about it. And I, I, I want to, I'm going to be doing the work to dig into why I've done this for so long and why it's such an accepted thing that people in my life and people everywhere enough to warrant multiple memes on the internet
2: people are tired. But I've I've always said to you I don't begrudge you being tired. I'm not really capable of falling asleep if I've like committed to something like that literally I literally can't do it. Um
1: and like I don't know
2: I just I'm like just tell me that you that we need to stop. Just tell me that you're tired cuz I I want to watch it with you. And while I'll be bum not to watch it in one sitting, I'd rather watch it together. Or if it's something we've seen before, if you said, I'm going to go to sleep and I said, okay, I'm going to finish it. You can watch it tomorrow, but at least we can make a decision about it then.
1: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think that I'm going to dig into the work of why I've responded the way I have for so long. I want to understand if it maybe stems from having ADHD, if that's, that plays a role in it at all and continue to work on just having more self-awareness and communicating more honestly about where I'm at what I need how we can how we can proceed if I am tired and we're going into watching a movie or making decisions about what we watch when we watch it and I think it also just reflecting on being more present not necessarily even just when we're watching movies but when we're going out and seeing something or doing something it was really shitty i really hated that this tainted the whole experience of watching this movie especially after seeing and discovering what this movie was so it was it was a very difficult thing for us to have to endure and go through and the fact that it was because of me just made me so sad and so frustrated and just like filled me with like shame and guilt and i I felt so shitty, I still feel shitty about it, but I'm hoping to move forward and get to a better place and understanding in my mind of of why i do why I've been doing this for so long, and then move forward being better and doing better
2: and I mean to your credit, not that night you were not great <laughs> after you did that reflecting like you apologized and took accountability and recognized, like named and recognized how I was feeling and gave me space to speak about that. And we move, we can, we move forward and we grow and we have language we can refer back to when situations like this occur. And I mean, I fully recognize that it is an immense privilege for, the biggest fight in our relationship, one of the like toughest parts of our week to be, you fell asleep in a movie. Um, especially when there are literal genocides happening in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that from any conflict that like desire to learn and grow and take accountability and apologize can reverberate into other parts of a person's life to create that like empathy and that desire for communication and understanding and working together. And I'm appreciative that we can do that together while also recognizing that our sources of conflict are pretty inane and small compared to many people's sources of pain and harm.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know I, I have no doubt we even talked about this when we were kind of unpacking all of this like there's no doubt that I'm not going to be perfect for the rest of our lives and that there are probably going to be times that I fuck it up
2: I'll wait till we're 70 <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but continuing to be accountable and to want to move forward and to be better is what I want to strive for
2: good good story let's talk about the movie
1: Um, it's incredible. It's like a four and a half out of five to a five for me. I want to experience it uninterrupted. (laughs) And we've talked about rewatching it together and having that uninterrupted experience because this was amazing.
2: Because this was the thing I I purposefully I've actually had this on my um my like radar for quite a while because the. The cover art is really beautiful and, like, drew me to it. The title, Little Fish, is really compelling. Um, And there's only a handful, like, I'm going to say less than 10 people I follow on Letterboxd who have seen it, but who have given it a four and a half or a five out of five.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And I was like, whoa, okay. I, I Honestly, I didn't even know it was about a, like, memory loss virus. I was just like, cover's cool, people like it. But it hasn't been available on anywhere streaming. And then I'm going to say a couple months ago, I got like the notification from Letterboxd that it was on AMC Plus, um, which we have access to. And so I've kind of had it in the back of my mind, like when the time is right, I'm going to pick this hidden gem that I'm sure Elliot's never heard of. And I'm going to blow his mind with it, <laughs> which yeah. is another reason why it was. Yeah. And like, so I didn't say at any point, like, this is a really good movie. I wanted you just to experience with no expectations A movie that at the end you'd be like, holy shit, how have I never heard of this? Mm -hmm. Instead, you were like, holy shit, I fell asleep.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
2: I didn't even know who was in it. And then when I right before I like picked it, I was looking at it a little bit more and I was like, oh, Olivia Cook's in this and I really like her. I haven't seen her in a lot. We never finished Bates Motel, but I liked her in Bates Motel. But we both love the film Sound of Metal. I teach it. So I watch it (laughs) two to four times a year. (laughs) Um, which means you don't get to watch it as often because I'm watching it and then talking about it for two weeks at a time, uh, multiple times a year. But Olivia cook has been really great in the things that I've seen her in. So I was really excited about that. She
1: crushes in
2: this. She does. She's so good. So she was an executive producer on this and we were talking about this afterwards. It is her real accent. So she's uh, talked in an interview about how this was the first time since she was 18 years old that she's been allowed to use her real accent in a film and because she was an executive producer, she like, that was like a, a demand of hers or like a requirement of hers. Good for her? Um, absolutely. Jack O'Connell, who plays Jude, who's supposed to be American, didn't always convince me that he was American or Canadian. I don't know what he is. But North American Um, had moments where I'm like, are you Irish or British, dude? <laughs> so I didn't <laughs> totally pull off that American accent, but... I thought the two of them did a great job. This film is, you kind of mentioned it after I was mentioning Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You brought up Comet, sorry, you brought up Comet, which we've talked about on the show. But it has like a little bit of a softer, dreamier, more grief focused Mm -hmm. edge, like a ghost story or after Yang or even after Sun. Um, It doesn't quite hit as hard as those. Mm -hmm. Not quite as aimless Mm -hmm. like there's times in this movie and I think that's what stopped it from being like a five out of five for me Is times where it feels like it really wants us to like get the plot it really wants us to get the like contagion element of it in an almost like why the last man or like an almost fx show kind of way Mm. where I'm like just just lean into the like the relationship and the emotions and the memory and the the fear and the sadness and the love like just lean into that we don't need these moments of tanks yeah. rolling through the streets
1: yeah and like they can do that but like have it be like soft focus in the background
2: totally yeah
1: like i agree like this the film has such a lock on atmosphere and stakes in the more intimate moments without having to zoom out and show us everything and spell everything out yeah and i think it's stuff like that that made me kind of because coming out of it i'm like this is a five out of five but then thinking about it i'm like no there's like there's little bits that could have worked a little bit better for me and it
2: has go ahead sorry i interrupted
1: you no i but i just think on the whole like this is kind of the sweet spot for romance stories for the stuff that we we tend to like
2: yeah i'm not I I had this conversation with a friend over text message when they asked uh, me if we would cover Titanic on the show. And I said, I don't really like love stories. And they were like, what? And they're like, but love is great. And I'm like, I'm not saying I don't like love, but I've just never really been drawn to romance movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And a movie that at the end, it's a love story. And like, like when I compare this to a ghost story, which like are both looking at, grief in in a loving relationship like in a in a romantic partnership and and loss and grief in that a ghost story like outshines this for me yes but this is pretty close like I feel like with a couple changes it would have been perfect yeah but you know maybe that's not for me maybe that's this movie isn't meant to be my five out of five it's meant to be somebody else's five out of five right yeah. And that that's totally okay. I could see a lot like not enough people have seen this movie no. and it's really, really good. And there's a lot of people that I know who I think this would like just hit for them so hard. And this is a movie that I think if I had seen it as a teenager, it would have been like up there with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind in terms of like the type of love story. Because so I was a little bit more into those movies, like 500 Days of Summer and that kind of thing in my like teen and early twenties years. And even then they still weren't my fave. But when it came to those types of movies, I didn't want to watch like the notebook or sweet home Alabama or whatever. <laughs> like I wanted to, how to lose a guy in 10 days. I was like eternal sunshine. I have this boss mind.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so feel-
2: this is, this is in that, but softer and more emotion focused.
1: Yeah. I I echo that completely. Like I think there's a teenage slash young adult version of myself that like this film is untouchable. It's amazing. It's five out of five for sure. And I think that that's why it's it resonated so much with me because it does it does hit on all of those things that I so like from films like this. Um, yeah, and, and like I feel like this is a. This isn't that even that far divorced from like a Black Mirror, even.
2: Yep. Yeah. And but it's not. It's not doing the like overly focused on tech. It's kind of in the um. If I was going to compare it to a Black Mirror episode, it would be more like San Junipero or um. I think it's called the Entire History of You. Yeah. Or the the one with the um. The like robot version of the the partner.
1: Right with Gleason, Donald yes, Gleason. Yeah. yeah.
2: Like the times where Black Mirror goes softer and and isn't trying to be so bleak and nihilistic um, and technology is kind of just the conduit to tell a story rather than the focus of the story. Yeah. This would fit fit into that. It's I don't know. I think I think this is criminally underseen. I don't think it's been easy to access. And there's I, an irony in this. It also I wonder because it came out in 2020, but it was actually the short story was written far before. And it was filmed and shot and finished before the pandemic.
1: But yet it comes out in 2020. It comes out in
2: the pandemic when probably none of us want to watch something about a pandemic. Yeah. Right. And so I think it, it's that one, two punch of, so it's harder to see films and get distrib- distribution and, and that kind of thing because theaters are closed, mm-hmm. especially if you're an indie. Um and then on top of that, like, who wants to watch a film about a pandemic? And then there's this other thing of, like, as we're watching it, I'm like, why is nobody wearing masks? Like, if there was a virus that was going to make me lose my memory, you better believe I'd be wearing a mask everywhere. So there's a a suspension of disbelief that might be more difficult now that the world has lived through and is continuing to live through a pandemic. Yeah. Right. That we may not have questioned pre-2020. Mm-hmm. So a couple of in- interesting elements there. Do want to shout out Raul Castillo, who's in this because mm-hmm. um, Looking is one of our favorite shows of all time, also criminally underseen. And he is oh, so, so bonus daddy in that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also rad dad mm-hmm. in that. Like he's, I really like when he shows up in things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, seeing Olivia Cook and him, I was like, yeah. <laughs> and when this movie does some of the more. Like it uses um, subjective perspective to like get us into the head of somebody losing their memory. 10 out of 10 Mm -hmm. doesn't do it as much as I'd like it to do. But when it does it, I was yeah, it was just horrifying.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the aesthetic and like the cinematography are so locked in on like things that I love and like enhance that story and enhance how terrifying the story can be and how these things that can happen to us can be like it has some really beautiful lingering wide shots and then some really personal close-ups. I've been listening to the soundtrack since finishing it. I downloaded it and just been listening to it while I work.
2: The soundtrack really, uh, really the score really reminded me of after Sun to the point that I was like, is it the same person? And it's not, but it's that kind of like, oh man, all I have to do is hear that one. The, like this, the score that plays in the credits in and after send out, I'll be crying. Yeah. And it's got some kind of moments like that. And where the score is really smartly kind of evoking memory. Yeah. I don't know. It was, re- it's a really well-made film that I think more people should see.
1: Yeah. It's very smart. But not fall asleep. In. Yeah. Um
2: Hot tip. Show this to somebody, but tell them not to fall asleep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. I'm so sorry I ruined our first experience watching watching it, but I can't wait to revisit it with you proper.
2: Hey, at least we did both watch it. At least we've done enough work with each other and ourselves to get to a place where we will watch it because you did kind of a similar thing once upon a time in a different way with the film It Might Get Loud where I really wanted to watch it and you watched it without me. Yeah. When you knew I wanted to watch it and you never finished it. I think you fell asleep on your own or you like had to go to class and I refused to finish it with you. I'm like, no, you watched it without me. Um, and that was like 12, 13 years ago mm-hmm. and we've still never watched it. <laughs> yeah. But I will watch this one again with you. Maybe I'm at a point where I'd watch it. Might <laughs> <Well>, get <laughs> We'll see. How did Little Fish make you feel?
1: So adoring of the emotion and craft behind this absolute gem. How make you feel?
2: It made me feel a sorrowful terror. Like Mm -hmm. in the way that a ghost story does where I'm just like, if I put myself in the shoes of these two people and they're you and me, and I think about some of these moments happening to us, Mm -hmm. I want to die. Yeah. Until you fall asleep. And then I'm like, I don't care if it happens. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. we'll, we'll, we'll uh, stay awake for the rest of this time.
0: From
1: sorrowful terror to just yucky terror,
2: terror, terror, terror. terror. (laughs) So, Due to the events of the night before, you gave me a
1: second, a mystery, second mystery pick. Only fair.
2: Only fair. Although it wasn't supposed to be a mystery movie pick night, and we will get into that. But I picked the 2023 horror film When Evil Lurks. It is directed and written by Damian Rudna and stars Ezequiel Rodriguez as Pedro, Louise Zimbrowski as Rui, and Damien Salomon as Jimmy. And there are other people in the film, but not on Wikipedia Or on IMDb do they actually, like, tell you who plays who? Oh. So, get your shit together. Um, Synopsis for this is, in a remote village, two brothers find a demon-infected man just about to give birth to evil itself. They decide to get rid of the man, but merely succeed in spreading the chaos. What did you think of when evil lurks?
1: I mean, we intended, well, we wanted to see this when it played at Northwest Fear Fest, but we just had commitments that night. Um, and we weren't, as you alluded to, we weren't supposed to watch this this night. In fact, we had tickets that we had pre-bought to a Thursday night showing of the new film Priscilla.
2: Advanced screening of.
1: Yeah, and that was strategic. We wanted to do that because we've had so many experiences with piss audiences lately that we figure, hey, it's Thursday night. These are like the cream of the crop of a crowd that would want to come out And be respectful and see the movie because they're so excited for it. So they're going to be so locked in and perfect. And Cineplex has just been real, particularly bad.
2: Yeah. The only time we've recently had a good experience at Cineplex was seeing Saw 10 on the day it came out for a one o'clock show where there was like five other people in the audience. Yeah. Anytime we haven't, we haven't had a good experience at a evening show in ages yeah. at a Cineplex.
1: Um so we went to Priscilla, got maybe 20 minutes in and the audience were the audience was a piece of shit. <laughs> like everybody was talking, there was people next to us that felt like they needed to laugh or make a commentary about every single thing that happened in the movie and even if we told them to be quiet, the rest of the theater is talking laughing being noisy we plus
2: your seat was broken yeah
1: we were in the like reclining seats my seat was broken so it didn't even recline and we, you and I just called it yeah we're just like this fucking sucks I don't want to sit through that I, I haven't even been able to focus I don't know what's going on in the movie
2: yeah there's this weird thing where I was like is somebody like listening to like a hockey game on their phone because it sounds like there's like a low level like announcer talking about something and then when we left the theater like 20 minutes into the movie we realized the doors weren't closed to our theater or killers of the flower moon, which was playing directly across. And I'm like, Oh, so we're getting the audio from killers of the flower moon in our theater. And they're probably getting the audio from Priscilla in their theater yeah. because the staff haven't come and closed the doors when the movie started. Yeah. So also the theaters just not being run well. So I think it was the right call. I'm more and more into if we're clearly not enjoying this, if we're cre- clearly not focused screw it and let's get a refund on our tickets, which we did the way that the Cineplex employee helped us. It was like, this is old hat and people ask for refunds on their tickets all the time because people are talking and we went home and we watched when evil lurks. I wanted to watch something mean. I (laughs) wanted to watch something dark because that's how I was feeling because I'm so sick of people not being respectful in movie theaters.
1: Indeed. First thing I'll say right off the bat, don't, if you are the littlest bit intrigued to see this movie, I mean, first of all, I recommend checking it out if you do feel that way, but also don't watch the trailer.
2: It gives away all the best, like all the best um, gnarly parts are given away in the trailer, which is a bummer.
1: Yeah. I mean, this has some pretty upsetting content, some some very violent and gory stuff in it. And we must be desensitized as fuck (laughs) because you and I both felt it wasn't as nuts as people were saying it was.
2: Yeah, I've been noticing that more and more lately when people are like, oh, my goodness, this is like the gnarliest film that's come out. And then I watch it and I'm like, hmm. Like, I mean, yeah, there were some moments, but like.
1: (laughs) Is is it really that gnarly or am I just a sick fuck?
2: (laughs) (laughs) A little potato, a little potato, you know? (laughs)
1: Um, I thought this was really solid though.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think there was like a, a little bit of a level of disappointment because it's really being talked up in like horror communities right now and horror circles, and it didn't quit hit quite as hard as I wanted it to. Some of our friends who did see it at Northwest Fear Fest or have seen it before us kind of I think felt similarly. Like I'm seeing a lot of three point fives out of fives. And that's that seems right. And that yeah, that's good. Yeah. A horror movie that's a three point five. That's good. Um, When it does go gnarly, it is really, really gnarly. It's just not consistently so. Yeah. And there was a part of me that felt like it didn't totally have a lock on the narrative it wanted to tell. Yeah. But I also want to acknowledge that perhaps there's like geopolitical elements that are lost on me because it's an Argentinian film. Mm -hmm. There was times where I felt maybe the translation hasn't been done very well because the subtitles were kind of weird. Yeah. And also that thing of like... I don't speak Spanish, but there was times where it was very clear that the character was saying another character's name and -hmm. it wasn't in the subtitles. And I'm like, okay, Yeah. Um, So I don't know that I totally trust the English subtitles and wonder if that like diluted the thematics of the film or the narrative element of the film. Mm hmm where the acting and the visuals were really, really strong.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That was the part that I kind of felt like, Oh, I mean, it kind of starts as this dark, almost evoking some of the stuff from the beasts.
1: Yeah. I felt that to way me. too.
2: But then it kind of goes into this like zombie thing, but then it kind of goes into like a demon-y thing. And then it's almost like little ghost children-y thing. And I'm like, what does it want to be? Yeah. Like, it kind of was almost Cabin in the woods in it, where I'm like, it's like they had a grab bag of different horror genres and they were kind of picking up different parts of them and that didn't that didn't coalesce enough for me but perhaps it would with more knowledge of like the Argentinian landscape and history and like there seemed to be stuff going on that was exploring the politics between like the rural and the urban yeah in Argentina and then perhaps like in the first language of the film it's better
1: yeah I I felt that way too. Like it kind of felt like I was being pulled just from like set piece to set piece to set piece.
2: And they were all good set pieces.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of spectacle in this that is hard to look away from. But the narrative thread was kind of lost on me a little bit of what exactly is happening and why it's happening and why I should care. Yes. But I, I, I agree with you. I think that there might be many components of that that are just lost in translation or in my lack of knowledge about where this is set and where this is coming from. But I was compelled the entire runtime, I will say.
2: I was too. And I mean, some of the gnarly things that happen are so gnarly. And I did, I I really liked the two brothers, not in a like, they seemed like complicated characters and with complicated past, but I was like invested in their journey. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think there's some stuff to be said about um, one of the kids in the film, like a teenager, is like a a nonverbal neurodivergent. Um, They specifically say autistic. And clearly the actor isn't. Yeah. Um, And it did kind of feel like maybe that choice for that character. At first I was like not that bothered by it, but then it kind of felt like maybe they were using that as a... I don't know what the word is, but there's a part of the film where they say like, oh, autistic people are like easier for the demons to get into or something like that. And I was like, yeah, it's just like
1: kind of perpetuating the narrative that people with other bodies or cognitive cognitive abilities are scary.
2: Yeah. And that felt ableist in two ways, like one in, in like what the film is saying through that. And two in that it's played by a not autistic Actor, To my understanding, um, there's somebody that I follow on Letterboxd who who wrote really well about that, who spoke about how they have a brother who is a nonverbal neurodivergent person and that that part of the film really didn't sit well with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are always the voices I want to go to because I also kind of felt that way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, hearing from somebody who that's their lived experience, I was like, okay, so it's a bummer.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: And I didn't want to not say that.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's important. It's important to consider that. Especially when like I think that this is this is doing really well on Letterboxd in terms of like a lot of people are watching this right now, Mm -hmm. which I do love to see that like a smaller non North American horror film is getting picked up and being seen by so many people. And there are some excellent performances in it. There's some top tier practical effects.
2: Yeah. Some really oozy drippy (laughs) grossness a lot of
1: ooey gooey i think that this has one of the most the one of the most upsetting descriptions for a possessed person i've ever heard in them calling a possessed person the rotten yeah you could have called this movie the rotten and i would have even been more in
2: (laughs) so gross i think it's also worth noting um because this is something that just doesn't bother me and you we've talked about this on the show before but death of children doesn't really bother us
1: and i think that that's probably what fucks people yeah
2: there's a there are a lot of there's more than one death of a small child Mm -hmm. in this movie that is very graphic yeah um and i mean i just mean it doesn't bother me any more than the death of a adult yeah now if it's an animal that's a different story yeah (laughs) but um you know, it's, that's not something that turns us off from a film or makes a film even more upsetting to us, but it does for a lot of people. And I completely understand why, especially if you're somebody who works with small children or you have small children, um, totally get that. So fair warning, just that that's a key part of the film and it's, it's pretty gnarly. I think,
1: I I mean, this is probably, I'm probably treading on ground that's been tread so much, but it, I feel like, the worst thing about a child dying in a horror film, especially a young child, is that there's such a representation of innocence. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if something is able to kill a agent of innocence, then like what hope is there? And like, this is the worst world. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And for sure it's deplorable, but also it, I get more upset when animals
2: die. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's just an us thing.
1: Again, Maybe, maybe we're just sick fucks.
2: There's a lot in this movie that I liked. I'm really glad to have seen it. I think it would have been really cool to see it in the theater. Um, doesn't totally like coalesce completely for me, but I think it's really worth seeing.
1: If you're like I said off the top, if you're even like a bit intrigued by what we've said about it. I'd recommend checking it out for yourself.
2: How did *Wendy the lurks make you feel?
1: Completely compelled and validated that horror movies have warped my freaky little mind. How did it make you feel?
2: It made me feel swept up in the dark, sad journey. I thought this movie was more sad than mean spirited, and people have been calling this like a mean little film. And I'm like, actually I didn't really think it was. I thought it was really sad. Yeah. <laughs> that's where my brain goes. Sad, sad.
1: Well, I I and that's where I agree with you on the comparison to the feelings that we got from the beasts. Um I, I and The Beast is sad.
2: Beast is sad. I think like when I think mean spirited film, I think the sadness, and this is not like that. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, I was worried it was going to be, and it, and it for me, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, we're going somewhere very different.
1: A very this is this is huge. This
2: this, this is huge. Uh,
1: this is huge in both our movie history together, but also in our relationship history. This is true. So it was my mystery movie pick, and I chose the 2007 drama slash fantasy slash history, and I will add slash musical. Across the Universe. It was directed by Julie Tamer. The screenplay was written by Dick Clement, Ian LaFrenese, and the story was by Julie Tamer, Dick Clement, and Ian LaFrenese. And it stars a whole swath of people, but I will highlight Evan Rachel Wood as Lucy, Jim Sturgis as Jude, Joe Anderson as Max, Dana Fuchs as Sadie, Martin Luther McCoy as JoJo, TV Carpio as Prudence, Eddie Izzard as Mr. Kite, and Bono as the Walrus, Cuckoo Cachoo. Synopsis The music of the Beatles and the Vietnam War form the backdrop for the romance between an upper class American girl and a poor Liverpudlian artist. Learned after looking at that synopsis that that is what people from Liverpool are called Liverpudlians.
2: <laughs> Amazing. They have funner words in the UK.
1: hundred percent. We've learned this through Taskmaster. Okay. Set this up as a huge movie for both of us. What'd you think of it?
2: This was funny because you were, you were all like, I have the perfect movie for tonight. And I was like, okay, is it good? And you were like, it's a little long. And I was like, have we seen it? And you just were being so cagey about it. And then when it started and I saw what it was, I looked at you and I said, I see what you did there. So, the day that we watched this, the next day was our 14 year anniversary. Yes. And this film, Across the Universe, is the first movie we ever watched together. Yeah. And we watched it together two years before we started dating. Mm hmm. It's quite the story.
1: Can you recount
2: it? I can recount the story. So, <laughs> one of the, uh, just as a quick aside, one of the easiest ways for me to piss you off is to say that you don't like something that I love, but you like. Yeah. So I often say like, you don't even like the Beatles. <laughs> you get so mad at me. You're like, you don't even like Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> You're like, I do. You get so like, <laughs> like it's so, it's so easy to make you mad about it. Um, but I love the Beatles. The Beatles are such like an important part of my childhood, my life, my upbringing. My dad loved the Beatles. He was born in 1956. Like he grew up with the Beatles. And, you know, I was just listening to them my whole life. And I have so many vinyls of them that like were my dad's. And when this movie came out, my dad and I went to a lot of movies together, but he worked nights and it wasn't always easy to like see things right away with him. So I never felt an urgency to see it first with my dad. So I knew I was going to see across the universe with my dad, but it didn't really matter when. And he also like he didn't care if I'd seen a movie before and watching a movie with him was great no matter how many times I'd seen it. And it was great if he'd seen it before, too, like that. It it was all good. I had a friend that I was really close with in junior high who we both really liked the Beatles and we were like, oh, we're going to see this together with each other first. We weren't really friends anymore. And then I don't know how and I don't know when this or why I chose this to be my first time. But we had a mutual friend who I had known since kindergarten you worked with at the movie theater and she invited me to go see this and I was like, with her and I was like, cool. Yeah. And then she was like, oh, and I'm going to bring my friend Ben,
0: mm-hmm.
2: who was your best friend since kindergarten mm-hmm. and who you also worked with at the movie.
0: theater. <laughs> yeah.
2: And Ben and this person had. They'd been family friends since they were really little. Yes. And then Ben, I think, invited you. Mm-hmm. And I was friends with Ben, but I didn't really know you. Mm-hmm. And you were friends with those two people, but you didn't really know me. So we ended up in this like group hangout where we drove to the city to see this movie. We went to Eastside Barrios beforehand <laughs> and there was this whole like hullabaloo about how all I wanted was Italian wedding soup, but you actually couldn't like order it on its own.
1: It could so only like, be a
0: side.
2: Like it, no, it could only like come with a meal. Yeah. like it Like you couldn't buy it as its own thing. And then you were like, you can just, I think it was you. You were like, you can just have mine. But then they wouldn't let me do that. They were like, no, you have to get a meal and have your own soup. were yeah, like, like, you
1: can't do that. It's like, the fuck I can't.
2: Yeah, I think I, and it was, it was a substitute teacher from our high school who was serving us and who we didn't like. And I think I like said, well, like, what are you going to do if I just eat it? Like, <laughs> That's like, so
1: classic you too. Yeah.
2: What are
1: you going to do about it? So
2: I was being peak me, which is just like pissy, annoyed by everything. And you were being peak you because often when you meet people for the first time, you're really shy and you're really quiet and people are like, oh, that guy doesn't like to talk. But because you were with two people you were really comfortable with, you didn't seem to care that there was somebody you didn't know there. No. We went to Marble Slab and got ice cream afterwards. And we were when we drove over to the theater, you were you decided you were just done with your ice cream because we were going to go into the movie. And you were in the backseat with Ben. And I distinctly remember you took the last of your ice cream and just like shoved it on your face and then let it drip down your face like you were drooling and pretended to be a baby. <laughs> and I was like, who is this guy and why is he so annoying? It's that's a good bit. <laughs> then you also we were like standing outside the theater waiting for for people. And I used to dye my hair black. And you're like, that's so cool that your hair's naturally black. And I was like, it isn't. I dye it. <laughs> So spicy. So these were the the first interactions that we had, but we, we watched the movie. We all really liked it. Mm -hmm. We had a really good time. I espied my friend who we had promised we'd see with each other for the first time in the same showing with her dad at the front of the theater. And we just pretended we didn't see each other and then watched it again later and pretended we hadn't seen it before. (laughs) Um, yeah. And it was just kind of like, like there was no special reason the four of us went to this movie together. We just did. Mm -hmm. And we just had like a good night out. When we were driving back to LaDuke, we were listening to my iPod mm-hmm. on the Ox. Um, and I had like a Madonna song on, and you were in the back seat, and I was in the pass- front passenger, and you were like, This is so cool. Like, what good music tastes like? Is this a Madonna remix? And I was like, No, I don't listen to remixes. <laughs> and I could tell at that point that you realized I had no patience for you. Mm-hmm. And you said, I distinctly remember you saying this. You said, Oh, just you watch one day, we're gonna be best friends. I'm gonna call you up and be like, Hey, best friend, and you're gonna be like, Hey, best friend. And I think I was just like, Okay, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, who has egg on their face now? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, after this, shortly after this, we um dressed up for Halloween together for the first time ever. Uh, we dressed up as I mean. But well, that friend who had gone to the movie with us and then another friend, we had been the Powerpuff Girls in grade seven and we decided to be them again in grade 12. And you were Professor Utonium with <laughs> us. Um, and we kind of started hanging out together a little bit more, mostly just watching movies.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like we we watched Planet Terror. We watched Leon the Professional. Don't know how I feel about that now. Um, And, and just generally became friends. Yeah. But we lost touch after high school. And then you got in touch with me. About two a little less than two years after high school, we reconnected, started a band, became best friends, and then started dating. And now it's 14 years later.
1: Hey, best friend.
2: Hey best friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just wild. It's wild how life works. So this movie, it's just like it's the first movie that you and I ever saw together, and we didn't know the gravity of that at the time. Mm-hmm. But that's what it is.
1: Yeah. It is so wild. And I'm so glad that we have that story.
2: It's just hilarious.
1: It's so funny. And man, I can manifest a thing. Let me tell you.
2: Yeah, that's not the first time that you've manifested a thing.
1: (laughs) So great. Okay, so all these years later, what do you think of Across the Universe?
2: This is such a tricky thing because it was funny when we watched Sweeney Todd a couple weeks ago. I was like, oh, everybody thought this movie was bad. And then when I was reading about it afterwards, I was like, no, people thought it was good. It actually was pretty critically acclaimed. That's not true of this movie. It it has 53% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's mm. Not a well-loved movie. I feel like I can't be objective about this movie because first of all, when I saw it, I was 17.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I really liked it as a 17-year-old. I thought it was like really visually cool. I was delighted to hear these songs that I loved. Put made into a narrative and done in different ways. Like mm-hmm. even rewatching it now, I'm just like delighted to be like, oh, they're gonna play Blackbird. <sighs> um, I didn't really know Evan Rachel Wood yet. Well, I think I liked her in Thirteen, but I still like Evan Rachel Wood. Um, I just thought it was a cool movie then, and because it's so tied to you know the first time you and I met. Um, the Beatles are just so important to me in general. And then like, you know, I, I saw this with my dad as well. And Beatles are such a key part of my, like how I honor what my dad has given me. Like he gave, you know, lots of complicated things about my dad, hence the the name of the show, but lots of good things too. And one of the key things he did is gave me like a love and an appreciation for art. And he and I shared that together in a way that the rest, you know, my other three siblings, Not that they don't like movies and music, but I just don't think in the same way that me and my dad did and did together. Um, So my first tattoo I ever got was of John Lennon's glasses, and that was like, as in, like, it's for my dad. Um, So I just, like, can't see this movie objectively. (laughs) I just (laughs) just like it, and it just means something to me, and it kind of combines my love of music and art and movies and you and my dad and my, like, younger self, like, all together.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, it's not exactly the same for me, but it is the same for me. Like, there's so much history and emotion tied up in this movie and so many universal things that needed to align to have me see the trailer for this movie, get excited for it.
2: Even though you don't like the Beatles.
1: Enough. (laughs) And but that, would you
2: admit at the time you weren't a huge Beatles fan?
1: No, and I don't, I wouldn't say I'm a huge Beatles fan now, but I am a Beatles fan.
2: <laughs> All right, sure.
1: Oh, my God. Um, But just how everything needed to align for me to want to go with my buds. And, a, and their, and and their and a, strange and friends. And a stranger. <laughs> and our, their strange, grumpy friends. <laughs> And then for it to become the first movie that you and I would ever watch together and now here we are 14 years later. No, 16 years later. Doing it as basically a second job (laughs) professionally watching movies together. It's, yeah, it's really tough to separate the emotion from critiquing the film because I, I don't think objectively this is a perfect film, but I think this film rips. And it yeah. it hits on so many things that I also love about art and music, and
2: like there are some really visually stunning sequences in this.
1: Oh yeah, the I mean, let's get into it. I mean, some of the visual, the visuals and the the presentation of them is are astounding. The reimaginings of the Beatles songs are really well done.
2: I agree. I think, and I mean, all the singing is really good. And I like that the film itself, like what the movie's most been critiqued for is like not having a clear enough narrative and then like that it hinges on this like love story between Jude and um, Lucy and that it does it in kind of a cliche way. But I'm also like, have you heard the Beatles early songs? Those are all cliche love songs. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like the film is paying tribute to not just like, the literal songs, but like what the songs were about, because, you know, they specifically John Lennon, but the Beatles were like incredibly anti-war and specifically anti-Vietnam War. Um, You know, they, they became really into drug, like the psychedelics and um, surreality and and the film kind of moves its way through all of those things. And I think if you're a fan of the Beatles, you see that and you appreciate that. Mm Mm-hmm. And for me also, this was, I remember seeing this when we, when we saw it together, when we were 17, I remember being really moved by the like anti-Vietnam stuff. And I didn't, we grew up in Canada and it's not as well known like the, like, because you could flee to Canada to escape the draft. So this, this history of like men revolting against a mandatory, requirement to serve in in a war that they don't believe in just wasn't something that we were as aware of. Yeah. Like it's just not as embedded into like Canadian culture that we would know about it deeply at 17. Yeah. So this is one of my, this was one of my first times really like encountering that like anti-war movement specifically geared toward the Vietnam war. And I remember being really moved by it Mm -hmm. and like really horrified by it. And like that's a good thing. This this movie stoked anti-war sentiment in me. That's good.
1: Oh yeah, and I I even like the character of Lucy is very political, mm-hmm. and for, like even from the beginning of the film, like she has some excellent worldviews that I would echo today.
2: Jim's a bit, or sorry, Jude is a bit of a, a bit of a wet blanket, but
1: <laughs> <Yes>. whatever. <laughs> he's an artist, man.
2: Yeah, he's just creating art.
1: Um, but like watching this now. There were, there were moments where I got emotional and I got kind of welly when Blackbird kicked in. It was one of them. But there's a lot of moments in this, too, that I got goosies. Like, I really love the whole sequence with I've just seen a face in the oh, bowling alley.
2: Yeah, it's I, I, I like the dance sequences, too. Yeah, I think they're fun.
1: Oh, it's great. And like the whole I want you is so spectacular My and, cre- and creepy. Yeah. Yeah, your favorite Beatles song. Mine's Helter Skelter.
2: Which they also play, but it's not as much of a showpiece as I want yeah. you is.
1: Um, there's a moment when they're playing um, Happiness is a Warm Gun after he gets injected with the needle and he's like, <laughs> and he goes towards <laughs> camera and then goes back. Ooh, I get goosies. Just think about it. And then the whole sequence with Mr. Kite is... That's the thing that I always think when I think about across the universe, my mind just whew, right to the mystery. Yeah, I when it
2: was playing. I was like, I love this.
1: It's so good.
2: It's, so, like, I feel like this movie has like 10 out of 10 parts. And then and maybe. As a whole, it's a bit of a collage with moments that work better than others, but it still hits for me. Yeah. And I liked the I had the soundtrack on CD and I listened to it a lot. Yeah. And I had the. um. You know, my teenage bedroom where I just like sticky tacked everything to the wall. I had the insert from the CD that has the just passing through. It was like in mm. in the album artwork. I like ripped it out and that was blue tacked to my wall. That's great. Um, so I, I like I really liked a lot of elements of this movie that like continued to inspire me in a creative way past seeing the film. Um, yeah. So I, don't, I, I think it's good. I just have such a fond spot in my heart for it. And all the living people liked it. So according to Wikipedia, Ringo Starr, Yoko Ono, Olivia Harrison, and Paul McCartney all really liked it. And when um, Julie Taymor asked Paul McCartney after the movie ended, what did you think? He said, what's not to like. (laughs) So if Paul McCartney likes it, it's good enough for me. And would you believe apparently they're working on a sequel? That in 2020, Julie Tamar got into talks with Jim Sturgis and Evan Rachel Wood, and they're working on a sequel.
1: Do they even have enough Beatles songs? No, I'm just that. <laughs> oh yeah. That's uh, I mean, that's oh, fuck. We'll we'll go. See we'll that. go see it. Of, of course, course we will. Um, just a couple more highlights for me. Another moment that gives me goosies is when they're playing "All You Need Is Love," and then they intercut "She Loves You."
2: <laughs> you. Would it's, you would like that? I'm just
1: like, oh, baby, that is so good. That's this. the
2: most cheese ball part of the movie, but I love that and, you love it.
1: And there are so many baby babes in this movie. There's a lot of good looking people in this movie.
2: Yeah. And good looking in different kind of ways. I will say, so prudence. Yeah. We saw her live in Edmonton um, for Hades Town when it was like doing its pre Broadway like workshopping kind of stuff. Um, and she played Eurydice in Hades Town, and I think I don't know if she is still, but I believe she did play Eurydice on Broadway when it went there, mm-hmm. and she was awesome. Oh yeah, Hades Town was awesome. Is awesome. If you can get a chance to see Hades Town, highly recommend.
1: And also, her rendition of "I Want to Hold Your Hand" oh is so fucking good. In and this I was movie. like, it's
2: like it feels like it's in lineage with But I'm a Cheerleader and Bottoms.
0: <laughs> yes,
2: there's this like queer lineage of cheerleaders on football fields, just Amidst having the that lesbian longing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good.
1: It's, and it's another movie. And I love when movies do this. We talked about this before with films like the Goonies or, uh, film or like ET, where it's just a movie that can so easily create community amongst mm. a bunch of ragtag characters without getting heavy handed with exposition about it. It's just like, They all fit together Mm -hmm. because in the world of the movie, they're all tethered and they're meant to come together and they're meant to become a community and become a family.
2: And we talked about it when we were watching it. We love how like it's the Beatles lyrics that drive the narrative of the story. And it's the lyrics are all the same, but the way that they're contextually used reimagines like what they mean. Like I think, um, I really love what they do with Oh Darling between Sadie and Jojo. I think, um, I mean, what they do with I Want to Hold Your Hand is really smart. Um, There was a song that was in my head, but it's...
1: Um, Revolution?
2: Oh, yeah. Revolution number nine. Um, And even with Dear Prudence, right? Like, it's just, it's all really smart. Like, does it totally work? A hundred percent? Is it a 10 out of 10 movie? Probably not, but I really love it.
1: I agree. It's just so important to the two of us. It's hard to separate it.
2: And I'm glad we didn't watch it and be like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. I'm like, I think its heart is in the right place. I think it is such an earnest film. And sometimes I want earnesty and sincerity, even if it's a little cheesy. Yeah. And so Uh, I'm into it.
1: I agree. How does it make you feel?
2: It made me feel just a deep love for how this movie connects so many people and aspects of my life. Mm. You.
1: Just so grateful for it and its place in our history.
2: Hey, last movie.
1: Last Macaroni went to see this on our anniversary. It's the 1997 comedy slash drama slash sci fi film, Nowhere. It was directed and written by Greg Araki, and it would be easier to list the people who aren't in this movie than it is to list the <laughs> people who are, but I will name some of them. So it stars James uh, Duval as Dark, Rachel True as Mel, Nathan Bexton as Montgomery, uh, Kiara Mastri- Mastro Iani as Chris, Debbie Mazar as Cozy, Christina Applegate as Dingbat, Sarah Lazez as Egg, uh, Jor- <laughs> Alan Boyce as Handjob, Ryan Felipe as Shad, Heather Graham as Lilith Scott Scott Con as Ducky and on and on and on. I won't spoil all of the cameos that are in this because it, it
2: is wah wah wah
1: synopsis follows a day in the lives of a group of Los Angeles high school students and the strange lives they lead. All right. What do you think of nowhere?
2: I was a little nervous about this movie same. Because we have covered on the show Greg Araki's movie Mysterious Skin, which I thought was important and well-made, but had a tough time watching and then had some complicated feelings about just like the use of child actors in it, which we talked at length about on the show. And that was the first film we ever saw of his. And so I was like, I just, I I don't know what this is going to be like, but we had watched a couple of interviews with him on Criterion channel after we watched Mysterious, Mysterious Skin. And I was like, I just like this guy's vibe. And I like what he's doing, and I feel like he's important, especially in, you know, he's part of the new queer cinema movement. And so I was like, we got to go see this. Uh, you know, it's on our anniversary, but whatever. Let's let's go see it. It's part of um, Metro's curated cl- uh, series for November, which is called Nightclubbing. Um, and I think we're going to see most of them, but maybe not all of them. So we're going to just cover them as we watch them rather than as a rad rap. We also we are not nightclub people and we (laughs) were born in 1990. So I don't feel like we have the knowledge to speak about the, uh, connections in in this series
1: you weren't going to clubs between the ages of one and
2: ten <laughs> I was not going to clubs between ages of one and ten and I wasn't between the ages of 18 and 33 <laughs> yeah either. neither was I <laughs> um but it seems like a really cool series and we want to catch most if not all of the ones in it and it's curated by Paul Hanlon who spoke before this film and I really liked what he had to say about it um I loved this movie.
1: Holy shit. This was incredible. Like Maybe one
2: of my favorite movies I've ever seen. And I know my mother would say, Kylie, you have so many favorite movies. <laughs> yes, I do. Because I've seen thousands of movies. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them are really good. But I loved this.
1: Yeah. I mean, we we went with our buddy Elliot and I think the three of us had the most fun in the theater.
2: <laughs> yeah, we were laughing a lot and just like looking at each other and be like, ah, <laughs> and
1: I haven't laughed as much as I did in this movie in a long time at a movie. And there's just something about like the Californian dialect that slays me.
2: Oh, I have. <laughs> like, what's the word for it? It's just like a, it's a weak spot in my, like I melt for it, which is so dumb. Like, like why is that the accent that makes me like want to kiss somebody? <laughs> like, and I used to say it was just like stoner dudes, but I'm like, no, it's, it's a Californian accent. Um, cause I was just like, well, I'm in love with dark. Mm-hmm. Like, if I had seen this when I was a teenager, I would have been like that boy.
1: Just like kissing posters of them um, probably in your, in your room.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like, how, I wasn't Jake Gyllenhaal and Donnie Durko wasn't it for me, but James Duvall in Nowhere would have been.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Fortunately, I didn't see it till I was 33. Um, yeah, we, we just had the best time in this. First of all, it is such a horny movie.
1: It's And it was prefaced by Paul in his preamble that it is so horny.
2: And, you know, we saw Suitable Flesh, which was a horny movie and also had Heather Graham in it.
1: Heather Graham's in a lot of horny stuff. She is in a it's lot of horny jam. stuff.
2: This is hornier than Suitable Flesh.
1: And it's a, it establishes just how horny it is from the first shot of the film.
2: Oh, yeah. It's it's hilarious and so, so 90s. So 90s. Like this felt like, felt to me like Greg Akari has a soft spot for Clueless and likes it, but was like, I want to make my Clueless. Like I want to make mm-hmm. a version of Clueless that speaks to the scene I am a part of and and the concerns. This Clueless is so much about like rich, rich twits, right? Like, <laughs> and this is not, that's not what this is. It's like aimless young adults, like just out of high school, in their first years of college just like trying to figure out who they are and where they are and they're all super queer and super like into psychedelics and kick the can apparently. <laughs> um, I don't know. It was so good.
1: And it's it gets so melodramatic and over the top about the most mundane trivial shit and that just adds even more to how outlandish and hilarious this is. And again, it's just rife with babyly babes in like such a
0: 90s way,
2: such a 90s way. You know, so a lot of folks that I follow on Letterboxd who don't like this as much as you and I liked it and Elliot really loved it, too. Um, They critique it for not really having a plot. But as I spoke about earlier, I love movies with no plot. Yeah. I love movies that are just aimless and it's just about the vibes and it's just about like trying to connect with the experience that's depicted on film yeah. and like feel those feelings. Like this is a film about aimlessness and loneliness and not knowing who you are and what you want to be and who you connect with and looking for that in drugs and in sex and in art and in all of the different ways and in violence. Like just looking for a way to understand what this world means and and your place in it. And like, I loved that.
1: And that's such a true teenager thing. I mean, like this is definitely, Amping it up to 11, but that is, everything just has so, there's just stakes behind everything when you're a teenager and so much (laughs) feeling and emotion and passion behind every decision you make and who you are as a person, even though you don't even fully know who you are as a person.
2: Yeah, this is one of those movies where I genuinely feel if I had seen this when I was a teenager, I would have been obsessed and I would have loved it, but I would have thought it was really sincere and I'm not saying it's not sincere but I would have like connected with it and being like yeah man this is what it's like man and then like me and you and Elliot watching this together like we were laughing at those moments but I think with a real fondness of like oh that's teenage us oh yeah and like and I think that that's how Greg uh Greg Araki is looking at it too being like I have so much kindness, empathy and love for these people, but we're also going to laugh at it a little bit now that we're out of it. Yeah. Now that we're not in that space anymore, not to say that we don't feel lonely and aimless and question things, but we're hopefully seeking ways to deal with that that are different than these teenagers and aren't so like extreme in the feelings of it. So it was just like this empathetic laughter Mm -hmm. and this like recognizing yourself in the characters and in the moments in it. Um, Iraqi describes this film as Beverly Hills 90210 on acid
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I mean we, we've talked about the, like the comedy drama portion of this but there is a sci-fi tag on this as well and once it starts getting into that that just adds a whole it just takes it to a whole nother level
2: and I could see folks being like I liked everything about the film except for that that was weird but that only made it better for me Oh, yeah. I was like, that is amazing. This film has one of my favorite endings I've ever seen in a film ever. And me, you, and Elliot just like mouths dropped, looked at each other, burst out laughing, and were like, that was amazing. Yeah. It's also a good example of stay <laughs> till the end of the credits, even in a weird 90s indie film.
1: Yeah. 100%. There's
2: a great end credit bit in it. Stay to the end of the credits, even when you're at home, mm-hmm. so that you can get the full experience. I loved this. I want to watch it every year at least once, if not mm-hmm. more, for the rest of my life.
1: 100%. So we saw this is a a new restoration, a 4K restoration of it. And I believe it was a director's cut uh, that just came out this year. So I'm hopefully I'm, or I'm hopeful that they will release a 4K edition of it or that it'll come on Criterion or something because I'd like to own it. And watch it on and on forever. I feel like we should maybe mention that it is not completely without some pretty intense and there's a, uh, there's a specific intense and upsetting sequence of assaults with some suggested sexual assault in it. It's
2: very upsetting.
1: Yeah. And And, um, there's some hyper exaggerated violence in a couple other spots as well.
2: Including um, suicide.
1: Yes. So,
2: And I feel like, and they are upsetting moments, and I think they're meant, like I see Iraqi having sincerity, and still in this hyperbolic way, but with the nihilism of being like, it's not all drugs, it can be self-destruction, it can be destruction of others, like putting that in there, Mm -hmm. um, which seems to speak to some of the ways that he'll look at that in a more um, specific way in... Films like Mysterious Skin. Mm-hmm. Like you can see that he also wants to explore this really dark and really harmful exploration of loneliness and and things that happen to folks in their lives. And yeah, those scenes are pretty they're really upsetting.
1: And it's um, like tonal whiplash, too. So absolutely. That, that exaggerates them even more.
2: Yeah, it's that like you're laughing one second and then you're like, oh, I'm not laughing anymore. Yeah. And I definitely think that's the intention, but that doesn't make it easy to watch.
1: Yeah. But even that said, and that being a part of the film, I would watch this again and again and again. I so enjoyed the experience of seeing it. I, I love that we saw it on our anniversary <laughs> <laughs> and went for a slice of pizza beforehand and got to go see it with our bud, Elliot, who enjoyed it as much as we did. Such a lovely experience. How did it make you feel?
2: It made me feel obsessed with this sharp, wild, queer 90s gem. You?
1: Surprised and filled with joy.
2: Yeah, it's wild. This would be a great double feature with Clueless.
1: (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And to do it with somebody who's never seen it before.
2: Yeah, it was wild. It was fun. Okay, let's talk about dads.
1: Dads of the week.
2: (laughs) Who's your bad dad?
1: I chose husband from the black hair portion of Qui-Don.
2: Interesting. Okay. I got overwhelmed by Qui-Don and didn't pick anybody <laughs> from any of it.
1: That's fair. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I wanted to be a little smot.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. And be
1: like, I'm going to choose qui But I also felt like the character of husband really stuck with me in that he's just supremely selfish. And I mean, he commits to a life with another person without considering necessarily what he needed to commit for himself first, commit to for himself first. And it's okay that you can change what you want to do or what you need, but he doesn't communicate what he needs well or at all or with any sense of kindness or empathy. And that creates a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And I've been through a different but not too dissimilar version of this in my life and it fucking sucks. So he's a doink. Don't like him. Who'd you pick?
2: Well played. Um, I picked Donald Sutherland's character of John Baxter.
1: Mm, interesting. I was like kind of circling this, but I couldn't land a rationale.
2: So he to me is that bad dad that's unintentional, which sometimes is more insidious, because mm-hmm. if you can't recognize it and acknowledge it, and on the surface it doesn't seem like it, It can be a lot harder for the people that you're harming to detach from you. I think when you've got somebody like husband, you can be like, you suck. You're a bad influence in my life and I'm cutting ties with you. And other people, for the most part, will understand and support that. But he's a person who like his intentions are good. Mm -hmm. But what he does is actually harmful. So to me, John's refusal to acknowledge the grief that he so clearly has that like his son i am sure has who's sidelined for the entire film
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that his wife has creates this poisonous gulf between every member of the family but even more so a gulf in himself like his refusal to genuinely acknowledge the emotions that he's feeling to try and work through them to incorporate them into his life to have honest conversations with his wife and and i would hope with their son about This awful loss that they've experienced and and how they're navigating it makes him like separated from himself to the point that he can't be the good person he clearly is, but he thinks he can. And that's that just kind of, like I said, insidious, unintentional bad dadness that's almost harder to put your finger on and identify and work through. Because a character like John, if he won't do it, it's never going to happen. And if you try and bring that up, other people might just be like, well, he's like he's going through something and he's trying his best and that kind of thing. Whereas a character like husband, it would be like, yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean you gave a really good argument.
1: I think that that's the rationale I was looking for, though, because I completely forgot that they had a son. And but like
2: <laughs> because they forgot that they well, had that, a son. That's just it. Like, I think that was very like his int- sister just died and you abandoned him at a boarding school so you guys could go to Venice. Yeah. And I think excuse I, me.
1: I think that that's the intention of the film. is hundred percent is we are with the parents trying to forget everything that's happened. So let's just like ditch our son and like go to Venice.
2: Well, you and I almost never talk to each other ever in a movie. Unless we have something very important to say and then we get so close and whisper it as quiet as we can. And in this I was like, where's their son? Where's the the boy? And it wasn't until like quite far into it that we found out he was at a boarding school. And I'm like, you abandoned, like his parents abandoned him after he saw his sister die? Yeah. Excuse me?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right.
2: And of course, since we're spoiler free, don't want to get into the end of the film, but I feel like where the film ends and why it ends the way it does is because of his inability to work with himself and other people to navigate his emotions.
1: 100%. Uh, he's it.
2: Okay. John Baxter. Don't, Don't be, be our, our dad. dad. Who's your rad dad? My rad dad is Emma from Little Fish.
1: I picked Emma too.
2: There weren't a lot of like clear-cut rad dads, despite the fact that we watched <laughs> six movies. Yeah. But... Emma, to me, is like the epitome of patience, kindness, determination, and yet also still looking out for herself, which is so important. Like, she doesn't lose herself in caring for others. Not that she doesn't have messy moments, not that she doesn't have moments that she's not proud of, not that she doesn't sometimes have no idea what to do but she's always like willing to try and she seems reflective and like she's honestly like she's goals. Yes. Olivia Cook said that this is the character she feels is the most like her that she's ever played. So she's just
1: saying that cause she got to use her accent.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it did sound like me. So it must be me.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you put that really well. I'll just add that Emma is just an imperfect practical and caring force of love that does her best to carry love and support the important people in her life and she draws so much strength from that but also has so much strength in setting boundaries of what's right for herself and applying those same things to herself in her quest to seek and find happiness.
0: And
2: it's not just her in her romantic relationships. Well, it's not the focus of the film, there's a couple moments with um her friend who you like you pointed out, those were some of your favorite moments in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great.
1: Yeah. Okay. Emma.
2: Be her dad. Be our
1: dad. I got a daddy. Who's your daddy? Dark.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not mad about it. I did look because so I was like, shouldn't I put him as a daddy? Because they're in college. But he was 25 when he made the movie.
1: So it's all good. So he's
2: an adult in the movie and he was an adult in real life.
1: And he can kiss me and kiss me and kiss me.
2: <laughs> He'd kiss both of us. He's a bisexual manic dream boy. Yeah.
1: We have a king size bed. He'd sleep in the middle.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he is 51 in real life now. <laughs>
1: um, maybe we get. Time machine. Posturepedic baby. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, dark. wheat woot. woot. Before we get out of here, we're gonna hit you with a rad wreck, and it's gonna be play video games together. You and I play quite a few video games together. We're pretty consistently playing Mario Kart 8 Deluxe on the <laughs> Nintendo Switch. All year, baby. I think that we've bought three different versions of Mario Kart 8 across two different systems. We love us some Mario Kart, but right now we're currently playing the new Super Mario Brothers game, Super Mario Brothers Wonder. And it is wonderful. It is so fun. We've been playing video games since we first got together. You mentioned that Halloween we dressed up in Powerpuff Girl as Powerpuff Girl characters. And that day you and I hung out and
2: played Mortal Kombat. Played Mortal Kombat. And one of the like big ways that we bonded early in our relationship was we bought a Wii together and we would play what was it? Just Super Mario Brothers? Yeah. In Wii. Yeah. Um, with the two of us and then my brother and his good friend Alex and the four of us would just have such a good time like hanging out playing playing games together and I find I especially love bonding through playing video games when the weather changes. Mm-hmm. We live in a place where it gets really cold. It's dark most of the day. <laughs> yeah. Um.
1: Don't want to leave the house. And when
2: winter hits, it's not fun to drive anywhere and not really safe to drive anywhere. And so that's a great time to hunker down and, and and do something that's like active, but you can be under the blankets and, mm-hmm. you know, and I always notice us in the fall kind of get ready to like play a game. And so it's mm-hmm. nice to, to do that together, too.
1: Yeah. So whether it's with a SO or some buddies, play some video games together. It's super fun. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Like I mentioned off the top, go back and listen to our episode with Nicole talking about the Not Your Final Girl series uh, from this year on our rad rap. It's excellent. You can also follow us and sign into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could please share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these cuckoo-catchews this week, so until next time.
2: I'm Kylie, and my dad's dead.
1: I'm Elliot, my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad.